For this first episode of 2022, I'm actually looking back. Over the past year and a half, I've released 38 episodes, and I started interviewing for the podcast just as the pandemic started in March of 2020. I also started another brief project that was going to be the Culture Fit podcast, which I've been then fitting into the Mission Impact podcast instead. Over those interviews, issues of equity, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how these issues show up in organizations, especially nonprofit organizations, have emerged frequently in my conversations. For this episode, I'm featuring some of the highlights from those conversations. I loved the chance to look back and listen to those episodes and look for some gems. While there was a lot more great stuff that I could have included, I tried to focus on a few themes that went across multiple interviews. These themes included how our sector is a reflection of our wider culture and the implications this has, why so often people of color feel the need to assimilate and or code switch in white dominant cultures and the emotional toll that that takes, and some of the common mistakes that white-led organizations make in trying to become more equitable, as well as what positive steps folks can take to cultivate diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging in their organizations. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming martyrs to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. One of the themes that I heard was that reflection of how the nonprofit sector is a microcosm of our larger society. Our sector definitely does not exist in a vacuum. Unfortunately, though, I think for many years, some might have thought, whether they're inside the sector or outside, that we were different or special somehow. But no, just because there are many well-intentioned people in the sector, it does not mean that the patterns of behavior and unconscious beliefs and assumptions we've all learned from living in a culture undergirded by white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism, that somehow we're exempt for these from these with our tax-exempt status. No, because we're trying to do good work. But unfortunately, those same patterns show up across the sector. A good example is that the larger the organization's budget, the higher the salaries, and the more likely the CEO is going to be a white man. Tip Fallon comments on this in our conversation. That, that's my belief in, in underpinning even in nonprofit organizations who may be providing social services or direct support in the community, in one sense, like those are still a maybe a, not a microcosm, but they, they sit within a larger society. In this larger society, if we talk about whether it's patriarchy or, or the racism or xenophobia or any of those things, but even sometimes just the, the capitalist mindset and the individualistic mindset that promotes a belief of scarcity. Organizations and cultures are not things that fell from the sky. So we need to remember that people, maybe not us, people maybe generations ago made some decisions, many of them very um, oppressive decisions towards entire groups of, of races of people that created a lot of these structures and organizations and, and hierarchies that, that we're living in. Then for today, what are our decisions and what are 
the ramifications, not just today, but to borrow from indigenous mindsets and ideology, multiple generations down the line, because we're creating cultures today that will last well beyond the 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. or 10 p.m. that a lot of people work. Nialko Perry comments on how the ways we work and measure productivity and accomplishment spring from roots that would most likely surprise most of us. Our structures in general in terms of business are based on white supremacy. I mean, all the way from our educational systems, our business structures. I was listening to the 1619 Project. Yeah, amazing piece by the New York Times that really looks into our history of slavery and also just the legacy of slavery. And one major piece is that a lot of our business structures are based on how the plantations were run. They had very complex systems. They had middle management and ideas about productivity and reports about productivity of how to best feed a slave and have them be as efficient as possible. And we're extremely successful in that. So much of our wealth in America is based on that piece of our, of our history and our life. So when I think about just structures in general, I'm like, yeah, like the whole thing, everything, which does make it difficult, I guess, to just live in society and to work in any system. And that's, I guess, the rationale that I give myself is that I'm here to dismantle and to support in the transition and the change. But I think it's very important to just acknowledge where do our structures come from? The nonprofit sector certainly mirrors the rest of the culture in terms of who shows up in what levels of leadership and on boards. There have been calls from major institutions in the sector for years to work on the issue, and, and yet the needle hasn't really moved much in terms of diversifying. I think a lot of it has to do with this notion, especially in predominantly white organizations, of it's just about diversity and it's about numbers. Let's get at least one person, one person of color, one person with some kind of diversity factor beyond uh, white and men and women. But then that underlying factor of how is the culture supporting that person to be able to be successful and really contribute in a meaningful way. Carlin Madden cites the study that I was referring to. Jean Bell, who talks about, I think it's called Hire by Hire, and talks about some of the survey data on executive leadership in the nonprofit sector has not changed in the last 20 years. So demographics have not actually changed. Given the context that we live in and the stubbornness of the challenge, what can people do to move the needle? Kristen Bradley-Bull offers one possibility. Is written by the so-called winner. I think that's all wrapped up in what you're talking about. And one certainly of the primary opportunities for so many nonprofits is to, and especially ones that are white-led, is to really start listening a lot more, to listen more deeply to stories from the communities that they are a part of, or not as much a part of as they wish that they were because that's where so much wisdom rests. And it is in storytelling that many learnings, many examples of resilience and creativity and perseverance live and live actively. Certainly in the nonprofit sector, you know, how are we, how are we supporting, how are we supporting a system that, how are we supporting the larger system that, that isn't serving a lot of, of our community members? So I think there are lots and lots of questions in all of that. And some of what I take hope from is 
that piece around we have activists and movements who are pushing. And so when the more traditional nonprofit sector is in good dialogue movement folks, there there's lots of zest there. There are lots of, of aha moments. And so I think we just have to continue again. It's that porousness, it's that sharing of stories that that help others in the nonprofit sphere or grassroots activists and people in the nonprofit in the formal nonprofit sphere, as well as grassroots groups um, that are not C3s. There's a lot of possibility in bringing all those folks into conversation, storytelling, deep, deep consideration of common, common interests, which is not necessarily the first thing that people recognize, but we have common interests in what I would call collective liberation. Iaco Perry speaks to this as well and goes beyond storytelling to how it shows up with frontline staff as well as leadership and the connection or rather the frequent lack of connection to the community that is being served. People that are doing the really direct service are having a, a real challenging time versus, especially around their income. More often than not, they're the least paid person, but they're the people that are really dealing with the direct work. And then there's a whole disconnect between the direct service people and the people that are really high up. And the other disconnect in that area is like race. <laughs> it's like direct service. That's where all the people of color work. And then as you go up, it's just all white. And that to me, like I think symbolically, I find disturbing. I'm like, what is that about? And then also in terms of who they serve, more often than not, it's people of color, people that at least represent a disenfranchised identity. And that's not reflected in the leadership of nonprofits. And so for me, there's just this huge disparity and disconnect that I don't understand. And I feel troubled by. More often than not, the people who need help are people that represent disenfranchised identities. And why is it that we don't have those that represent those identities in leadership? I mean, that's where I see there's just a huge problem in that. But I mean, honestly, my friends that are in nonprofit, when I've worked in nonprofit, it's just, it's almost like it's normalized where, yeah, the whole board is white. The whole leadership is white. They don't know what's happening. Like they're not connected to the actual experience of the people that they're serving, but they get to make the most important, most drastic decisions. And you know, fundamentally for me, it's the people that are closest to the pain should be closest to the access and closest to helping to make decisions. And I'm kind of pulling from um, my Congresswoman, Ayanna Presley. But, you know, that's the thing. We need to, people who are representing that identity should be part of the solution and should be part of making those major decisions. And I don't see that. I rarely see that. And I think we know statistically it's not there. It's like at all. I think it's like 0.05%. Another theme I heard in our conversations was about assimilation. One of the challenges that I think few white people realize is the extent to which Black, Indigenous, and people of color, BIPOC, may feel pressured to assimilate into the white dominant culture to succeed, and the emotional toll that that assimilation takes every day. Tip describes this phenomenon is internalized in us. We default to let me wear the mask because I know at least I may be able to survive in this space and maybe be able to foster some relationships with that and get my agenda across. And what I find sometimes is sometimes that mask 
there's a permeable boundary between the mask and us. Sometimes it seeps into us, I think, at an unconscious level. And we end up, myself and, and others, unintentionally sometimes perpetuating some of the mask wearing in our organizations. But there's a generational divide as well. So even there, there's a little bit of, of tension just generationally. And this is, a, you know, again, a big generalization, but sometimes those who are um, younger coming into the workforce now have a little bit, I think, more latitude and say, hey, I want to wear my hair, even my clothing and appearance, or even my language in a style that seems authentic and natural to me. And like, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about this. So, hey, supervisor, like, can you call some of this stuff out? Because I don't really feel included. Supervisors might say, hey, you know, I've got to, you know, negotiate my boundaries with these funders or these community partners or X, Y, Z, and I'm trying to sort of toe that line. And, you know, we're going to get more, what is it, get more bees with honey, if you will. So like, let's sort of not rock the boat or whatever the, the adages are. That's a little bit, a little bit much for the appetite and the culture of that organization. And so what we see in that situation is, is someone who says, hey, this is what being authentic means to me. And because I don't feel I can be authentic, you, the organization, are not getting my best thinking. You're not getting my ideas about what's happening within this organization that I only have a purview about. And the system is losing out. The clients and beneficiaries are losing out as well. And then you have others in the organization who are essentially, I think, trying to survive in a way and saying, look, like these masks are also a survival tool. Keisha Sidney also comments on her experience, including how this approach is too often actually embedded in leadership development programs designed for people of color to help them succeed. Led multicultural leadership development efforts at a national level for our organization. And there's sometimes where I felt like we were just teaching the diverse leader how to be within this larger structure that is not necessarily welcoming. So teach you as a person of color to straighten your hair, to get in, get the interview, say the right things and do all those things. But how do we change the system so that it doesn't expect me to conform in order to be successful, that I can be valued for However, I look, if I choose to wear my hair this way, and I know that's a sometimes seems like a small thing, but those small things, they just add up. And there just seems to be many ways where as a woman of color, I felt like I haven't always been able to bring my whole self to work. So I do think that it's important that we allow folks to bring themselves and their culture and their beliefs to work and not have to hide who they are. So those conversations is, is a key part of it. That leadership development that you're talking about, it's essentially what, like, refo refining code switching or basically teaching whiteness. With these realities, many organizations are trying to state, take steps to address the current situation. And there are many pitfalls and mistakes and traps that white-led organizations fall into when trying to take steps to diversify, as well as become more inclusive and equitable. One of those mistakes is recruiting for diversity first instead of attending to the culture that you're asking people of color to step into. Rosalind Spiegel speaks to this. They're white-led, white boards, and they want to have BIPOC folks as part of their leadership, which is great. And the step that they skip is how do we prepare ourselves to welcome 
others onto our board. And so you don't just start doing equity when you've got a BIPOC person sitting on your board, because then they leave in a year and you wonder why. Robert Gass, who does the Art of Transformational Consulting, he's got a lot of great resources on the website, the Social Transformation Project website. This one's called Ouch and Educate. And it's basically a feedback loop. It's basically when you said X, I felt Y because. So this ouch and educate is a way that organizations and boards or staff can kind of begin to practice what they preach. So let's say you, Carol, and I are at our board meeting with a bunch of other white people and or mostly white men, say, and you say something and nobody pays much attention to it. And then like three minutes later, Charles says the same thing and people go, hmm, that's a good idea. Now, I might, I'm sure you've never experienced that, right? Never. Never, right. <laughs> never happened. So I might not catch it, right? Because I'm just as, as sort of susceptible to sexism as everybody else, right? And white women can tend to be a little competitive. So I may or may not, or I may even notice it and not know what to say, right? But if you've got something like uh, a commitment in place for collaboration, engagement, respect, equity, whatever, and a mechanism like Out and Educate, you could say, hey, Charles, when I said that three minutes ago, nobody really paid any attention to it. And and now when you said something, I noticed that people thought it was a great idea. And because of that, I'm feeling kind of invisible, or that made me feel invisible. And, or I might have the wherewithal to say, hey, you know, Charles, I noticed Carol said that a few minutes ago, and I'm really glad you amplified it, but I'd kind of like to hear Carol's original thinking around that. The trick here is that, and here's sort of the thing about this Ouch and Educate process, it's like the trick is for Charles to get, oh, wow, thanks for pointing that out to me, right? I'm sorry I missed that. I know we have a commitment to this, and I'm going to try and do better next time. That's, that's the right answer. The wrong answer is for Charles to go, oh, I didn't mean to, you're misinterpreting me, that wasn't my intention, because that's kind of a showstopper. So if the commitment is, let's practice these values, then there's also commitment to learning from, I said this thing, thank you for telling me this thing was felt off to you, and I'm going to try and do better next time, because we're all part of this team, and we all want to make sure that whoever is part of the team feels heard. The example that you were starting to talk about in terms of the the social justice organization that you mentioned and and then the black board member saying, yeah, and we, we, we have all these values, we have this mission, we do this work, and I'm still experiencing this. So I'm curious then what kind of came out of that conversation. Yeah, I don't want to suppose what might have happened. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how that became right. kind of an education moment. Yeah, yeah, And, and that did. gap, I'm sure people just were... I can imagine how chagrined they felt of, wow, we're, we really think we're doing the good thing. And- I mean, it was a real gift. I mean, and that's the thing, you know, for if someone to say, hey, you know, like when you said X, I felt Y, it is such a gift that that person has given you. I mean, really, it's just such a, you know, I mean, how else are we going to learn? I mean, we've all got our work to do. And so we're not going to be able to, to get any better unless someone is generous enough to point out where we're sticking our foot in it, right? At the same time, taking the risk to point out the ouch and educate those around around you takes a toll. Keisha Sidney describes the exhaustion of constantly being expected to speak up and how she decides when and when not to take on that emotional labor. It's exhausting to share 
And there've been times when I'm like, I'm not, I'm tired of educating everyone else. I'm just going to do me. I've got to preserve myself. Diversity fatigue is a real thing, but I found in relationships that are important to me. And I found, I've really tried to develop those, whether it's professionally, personally, but by sharing, this is the impact of this. When I hear of another police killing of a black person, that I think of, that could be my son who is 17 now, who's six foot four. And it could be my daughter who's 17 and just a black young woman. It could be me, it could be my husband. And sharing conversations with folks, one of my colleagues said, that really hit me when you talked about your kids and my kids. Because it's always, that's that family over there. But it's like, no, you know me. And you know that we have these things in common. But yet, our kids can be doing the same exact thing. And mine will be killed and yours will not. I can't speak for every person who I met, you know, who's like me. But I can tell you how this impacts me. I can tell you how this impacts my children. I can tell you how this impacts my family. And I think that that's one way that I've tried to personally just make connections with folks and help them to see things in a different light. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I appreciate also you're saying there are just sometimes when I'm not, it's, I'm not going to engage. I need mm -hmm. to, I need to preserve myself. Right. Yeah. Can't always, I can't always engage in conversations and it's, it's not always fruitful. There are some folks who it doesn't matter what you say, and I'm not willing to sacrifice myself for those types of conversations. We need to teach white people to be okay with people who are different. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of, there are a lot of books and things talking about being anti-racist, but we have to continue to just work on dismantling the systems. It's not just teaching one group how to be or how to respond. It's educating ourselves on how things got to be the way they are. And we, they didn't just start with us here, that here's the impact of those things. Here's how this group might've benefited from these laws and these systems. And then here's how this group may not have benefited. Another theme I heard was moving beyond the interpersonal, looking at how things are done, in particular, how hiring is done, how searches, especially executive searches are done, impacts what the sector looks like. Carolyn Madden talks about how they are approaching ex executive search differently to address some of these issues. What is required are that the conditions of executive search have to change. And so while the model that you're talking about sort of the last 20 years, it's called executive transition management. And they talk about um, prepare, pivot and thrive. Don Tebby and Tom Adams and the Annie Casey Foundation, all of these organizations came together to design this model, which is an effective model at the base of it. But the conditions around the model haven't changed. And so things that we do that are a little bit different, or a lot of my colleagues are starting to do the same, but we're very firm in the dollar transparency for all of our clients, actually building out networks, multiracial network, leveraging affinity group, having open exchange with clients, recognizing that often leaders of color don't have those sponsors or when we are reaching out to folks saying, who do you know in this space that would be a good executive director? Because there are so many white people in the sector in top leadership roles, our networks are very homogenous. We know that. I'm a white lady, you know, where this is a podcast, but I'm a white lady. Um, you know, two white ladies talking to each other. Two white ladies talking to 
to each other. Um, but our networks are very homogenous. And so we have an open door policy that anybody that has questions about a search can call us and talk to one of our associates about their interest in the role so that they can really prepare their materials to be successful in front of that transition committee. We're also coaching transition committees on what are some best practices. So if a transition committee is hiring an executive director and says only executive directors can apply for this, well, what we know to be true about the field is that there are fewer executive directors of color than white executive directors. And so we're already starting to limit the pool. Like even just subtle things, right? How are we how are we gender coding job description? The studies say, say not just in the nonprofit sector, but HR writ large, they women are less likely to apply to a job that is masculine coded. So if your job description says things like aggressive goal achievement, you know, women are, you know, women read that as like, well, can I aggressively achieve goals? So we use words like collaborate, not compete, you know, thinking really about gender coding there. So boards often think that they can do it themselves. But again, what do we know about boards? Many of them are predominantly white led. So we look again at the Samad network. So given all these challenges internally in our mindsets, implicit bias, interpersonally, culturally, where can organizations start to make change? TIP offers a thought about how we can manage and use ourselves in the situations that we find ourselves in. I'd offer you know a couple of things. First and foremost is compassion in understanding the system, and I think offering compassion to ourselves that we live in an, in a very oppressive hierarchical system where we we have to do a lot of things to survive and and keep some of the basic needs met. So A is just offering offering compassion to ourselves that that yeah we don't have have ideal choice choice sets in front of us. As we give ourselves and others grace and compassion, Stephen Graves talks about the importance of commitment from the top of the organizations. The leaders of the organizations need to be committed to the work for change to happen. For shifts to be made in order for real change, transformational change to happen, you've got to have senior leadership commitment. Whoever is at the top of the organization has the most power, they have the most influence. Oftentimes they can control where energy is being placed, where resources are being placed. While so much of anti-racism work focuses on the individual and interpersonal level, Stephen also talks about the importance of having good data to support your efforts. So a lot of times the mistake that people make in this particular aspect of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion is because there's such an emotional tie and pull to it with feelings and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, it can trigger a lot of people. People don't take a logical, maybe rational and uh, evidence-based approach. And I think whether you're in the nonprofit space, whether you're in the corporate America space, whether you're in healthcare like myself, you still need to be driven by data, collecting what we call real data, race, ethnicity, and language data, uh, collecting sexual orientation and gender identity data, using that data to set and drive real goals in terms of mm-hmm. what are going to be some realistic goals that we can measure and that can help us chart our path forward. Focusing on equity will most likely create some resistance. Stephen talks to this resistance and why it is an illusion to think of DEI as something as separate and apart. The advice that I would give to leaders when it comes to that resistance in terms of saying, okay, we got to put this off because there's other priorities is saying, hey, Mm -hmm. these are priorities within priorities. So whatever the conversation is, whether it's around COVID, 
whether it's around uh, your EHR, electronic healthcare record, there's going to be a lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion within all of those priorities. Uh, maybe you're building and expanding uh, your practices, uh, expanding a wing at your hospital. You've got to have some consideration for, okay, how are we gonna make this accessible, right? For a person with disability. How are we mm -hmm. gonna make sure that language, a signage is translated in a way that folks can understand who don't speak English as a first language. So these DEI themes are gonna be embedded into any initiative. To that point, Nathaniel Benjamin addresses the question of where responsibility for DEI should live within your organization. DEI should be aligned directly to your, you know, your senior leader, CEO, or uh, your operator. Mm. Diversity is about your people, and it's about the experiences that these people leverage. So, for me, if I were to create like the perfect organization, I always your human capital in terms of your process. Then you look at culture, you look at engagement and belonging, and then you look at diversity. And all of those areas together, to me, is the the, the strongest framework to create a human-centric culture. Keisha Sidney describes the bright spot she sees in her organization, and what is giving her hope for the future. I've encountered quite a few bright spots. I know we have a movement of leaders of color throughout the the national Y, and we call it, it's our multicultural leadership development group. And we have, well, there's mentors and coaches and supports, and we've created safe space, similar to the employee resource group models, where you have groups of people may be able to come together, work on policies. Uh, you've got the affinity groups, those types of things. But ours is more of a mixture of not just African-Americans with African-Americans. So you might see African-Americans, Hispanic, Latinos, Asian Pacific Islanders. You might have indigenous folks of which we need to improve our numbers nationally as an organization with regards to leadership reflect the communities we serve. But for those of us who are members of those communities, finding the commonalities and being able to support one another and educate one another and developing our own cultural competence, just because you're a person of color doesn't mean that you're going to be culturally competent as well in the things that we're asking from other groups that we should be able to be able to model those things as well. So it's definitely been a great support system. And we've seen a lot of folks who've been able to engage and advance their careers within our organization. And with a final thought, Tip Fallon reminds us that while we live in a culture and with a history that we didn't necessarily make, and we are also making today's history in small and large ways we can impact and have ripple effects that might mean a lot to the person across from you or in that Zoom call you attend today. Like we are products of history in a way of what we're living in, but we are also the creators of history. We're creating the history that, that those people will live in, in in the future, if that, that kind of makes sense. So it's an invitation as well to be intentional about what are the cultures that we're creating both actively, but also passively when when kind of we show up and just where, where are those choice points? And I think at the end of the day, the day to just hoping to find like peace for, for me. And so for me, a, a big piece of work is in some of our training, we use the term use of self, but just inquiring, how am I showing up? Not just what are my intentions, 
but what are my what are the impacts that I'm having on my peers, my colleagues, those who might come to my nonprofit for services, on funders, on the community um, at large, for others who have to make a lot of compromises in terms of their values and how they like to show up is just what's in our locus of control that we can change. Sometimes we talk about culture and its or systems and it's big, it's complex. Like how could I ever change this stuff? And for me, like the micro stuff matters a lot too. Those moments where we feel seen and heard and validated by a colleague, by a partner. I think those things really fill the tank. I think they give people hope in humanity that no matter what happens during the day, if you've got a really good connection with someone that can kind of keep our tank full as well. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com resources. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. The transcript for this episode, as well as all the resources, links, and transcripts for all the episodes can be found at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I want to thank Izzy Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as April Custer of 100 Ninjas for her production support. And we'd like to hear from you. Take a minute to give us some feedback or ask a question at missionimpactpodcast.com slash feedback. Until next time, 